0: This week's episode is sponsored by Spaces. Spaces is a new platform backed by 15 plus years of educator feedback designed to document the process and progress behind student learning in your classroom. Join the Spaces community to connect with educators across North America and gain access to free teacher-created resources, help educators who are just starting out on their journey, and learn new things from teachers who have been there before. So visit community.spacesedu.com today. Uh, is this the teacher hotline? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Hotline. My name is Ronald Hay, where we try to answer some of the most pressing questions for teachers in and outside of the classroom. Today, we have Brian from the Toronto District School Board. Brian, how can we help you today? Hey, Ron. With exam season around the corner for high school students, I was wondering if, as teachers, we should be rethinking how we assess our students. The silver lining of the pandemic last year was it forced teachers to scrap exams and rethink assessment. I would hate to see schools fall back into old habits. If there's an expert in this field, I'd love to hear if they think there's an ideal way to assess students. Between traditional tests, presentations, conversations, observations, and all the other fancy buzzwords, what's the best way to assess student learning? Thank you so much, Brian. Planning assessment at any level can be challenging, but I think I found the perfect person to help answer your question today. Today, I bring in Damian Cooper an independent education consultant who specializes in student assessment. Previous to this career, Damien was a high school teacher teaching English, spec ed, and drama. He has specialized in student assessment since 1986, and has consulted for school boards, the Ministry of Education, and other various academic institutions across Canada, the U.S., and international countries. Damien is the author of four books, which all focus on assessment and his most recent publication is titled Rebooting Assessment, which you can find online. Damien, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, my man.
1: Thanks very much, Ron. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, for all those of you who are listening, uh, I, I met Damien actually at uh, Appleby College uh, back in March. Uh, he was a a guest speaker at our school and talked about uh, assessment in a PD session that we had. Uh, he was an absolutely thrilling speaker and I thought to myself, I have to get this guy on my podcast. So Damien, thank you so much, man. Well,
1: it was, uh, it was kind of a bit of a shock to my system doing my first face-to-face session in more than two years, but, uh. I guess the message uh, managed to be conveyed because here
0: we are. And we're going to continue conveying that message to all the people that weren't part of the PD session uh, because there's so much to talk about because assessment really is one of the core parts of our job as educators is, you know, not only we were teaching, but we need to assess students and we need to make sure that we do that correctly. So before we even jump into some of my questions, I just want to make sure we get some of the vocabulary or terminology, right? Uh, Because as teachers, we use assessments all the times from exams to essays to presentations, but teachers might not be familiar with how some of these things are, I guess, quote unquote, categorized. Um, So maybe can you just walk through some of the terminology with us? Like, what are the different ways that teachers can assess students?
1: Well, as far as terminology goes, you make a good point, because the terminology can get us confused before we even start. Um, When I began my career in education well over 40 years ago, we rarely used the word assessment, except in the context of special education. We would do an assessment of a student who was struggling in school. Other than that, we talked about evaluation. Um, and evaluation was typically what we did once we taught for a while, and then it's time to stop and evaluate, you know, uh, how much of the stuff that the teacher taught have the kids actually retained, um, These days, we we tend to talk more about assessment in a fairly uh, general way. Assessment goes on all the time in the classroom from when a a, a beginning of a new school year and the teacher wants to find out what prior knowledge and skills, uh, what have the students retained over the summer, what we call initial or diagnostic assessment. We talk about ongoing or formative assessment, also called particularly in Ontario, assessment for and as learning. That's the kind of assessment that has got more to do with instruction than grading. It's the kind of assessment that uh, occurs in an ongoing basis to help the teacher adjust instruction and the student adjust the work that they're doing. Um, And then we talk about summative assessment, which is perhaps what everyone thinks about. And that's typically what comes at the end of a unit or a term or a year or whatever. And that is used to, if you like, certify. The level of achievement that the student has received. Then we also, when we talk about evaluation in today's context, that is a judgment. Um, and when we evaluate something, we may well attach a letter grade to it. Heaven forbid, I hate them, but a percentage mm-hmm. grade, um, a level, uh, for example, International Baccalaureate uses seven levels. And then there's still one more step, and that's grading. Um, and and the grading is is what typically appears on the report card. Um so when we evaluate something, we might give a piece of work a mark. But my dear friend and colleague says marks and grades are different. Mark, students receive many, many marks over uh, a year, but their grade is that summary uh letter or that summary percentage that appears on the report card, um uh, 82% in mathematics, um 60% in English, whatever it may be. So yes, there is an awful lot of terminology and it can get us uh it can get us confused sometimes.
0: Here's um so I can't remember who I brought this up with, but do you imagine a world or would you be for a world where Marks and grades and all that stuff just didn't even exist. We just learn for the sake of learning. Obviously, I don't, I don't think practically that might not happen, but what are your thoughts about living in this education world where marks and grades didn't exist?
1: I would be happy if I went to my grave with percentage grades mm. having disappeared because that they are the most heinous forms of grades in, from my point of view. One, because they suggest a level of precision that doesn't exist. Mm. Two, they are more often than not used to rank students one against another in a norm-referenced fashion. Uh, That's what I am opposed to. Uh, I I, I mean, the issue of uh, would I be happy in a world where there were no grades whatsoever? Ideally, yes, I would. But I also I mean, I say to parents, how many of you grade your kids? You know, (laughs) do they learn anything as a result of being in your home and growing up with you without grades? Well, of course, they learn all kinds of things. So parents typically don't need to grade their students. But when we're talking about large scale education, we have the added difficulty that we have to make decisions about our students ready to progress to the next level and so we have used grades traditionally be they letter grades numerical grades whatever they may be we have used those in a summative way to make decisions about whether or not students are ready for the next level this is problematic of course because levels in our system mean grades and uh, ie grade at uh, kindergarten or jk through grade 12 that's problematic in and of itself because that points to the fact that we define learning not according to achievement. We define learning according to a period of time, and uh, if you hold time constant, um, then there are going to be massive variations in the amount of learning that occurs with a given group of students. Anyway, I digress a
0: little bit. So my, but
1: um, yeah, they grades. I I can live with with them as a. Sorting mechanism, if you like, at the end of an instructional period, uh, but I would dearly love to get rid of percentage grades.
0: Right. So, would you say your your preference would be if instead of percentage grades, we would have, I don't know, like, like, like the IB program where they have levels like seven, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven.
1: I, I'm happy with that. On on for many reasons. Number one, having seven levels is manageable. We can actually discriminate seven levels of performance in a fairly reliable way. We cannot discriminate a hundred levels of performance right. using a percentage scale. That's absurd. Seven identifiable levels, and the great thing about IB, because of course it's a globally internationally recognised uh, model there is a great deal of training that goes into IB um, uh, grading Procedures to ins- to increase. There will always be measurement error, but to increase the reliability of the assigning of those levels. So, in in as long as we're going to have grades, the kind of IB model, from my perspective, is the most desirable. One.
0: Right. You know, it's funny that you say that uh, your 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 comments are very similar to another guest speaker that we had from Brock University at our school uh, last year. He's a prof, and he talks about uh, assessment and grading as well. And, uh, to your hit to your was p- it Louis? Was yes, it Louis. yes, it was Louis. Yes, it was Louis Valente. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and he, I know Louis. Yes, yeah. and his whole point too was you know to to distinguish between an eighty five and eighty six like that's you, you can't do that it's impossible right um so he was suggesting for us to give grades with a letter a number ending either in zero two. Uh, an eight, I believe, or something like that. And um, I, I remember I started doing this years and years ago before I even heard about this from another teacher of mine. And it just made so much sense because you're right, an 86 versus an 87 versus an 88, like what's the difference right there, right?
1: Well, I mean, many uh, jurisdictions um, in the province of Ontario, for example, when, they were, uh, when teachers were presented with an impossible task, i.e., the ministry in Ontario identified four levels of achievement, the achievement scale, one, two, three, four, and yet still insisted that students from grade seven to 12 receive percentage grades. It was, it's a patently stupid system, <laughs> but teachers were required to somehow magically get from four levels to a 100-point percentage scale. So mm. certainly what I and many of my colleagues advocated was the so-called pegged scale, So you actually turn the 100 point scale into a 12 point scale. So, you know, for the absolute, the student who aces everything, they get 100. And then there would be another midpoint within the A range and then a lower level. Because the other problem with Ontario's model is that there was a a, a range of 10 percentage points for levels one, two and three and 20 for, for level four. So. But, but so turning a one hundred point scale into a twelve point scale, actually, it's no longer a percentage scale, but you know, we were somewhat comfortable with that because teachers could discriminate between a high level four, um, um, a, a solid level four and a low level four, a high level three, a solid level three, and a low level three. But all of this is, you know, the craziness of using. Quantitative measures, numbers, to summarise increasingly qualitative information. Because what goes on in schools, what go, what learning comprises, such a rich, incredibly complex combination of knowledge, understanding, skill, attitude, um, and and such. Learning requires really qualitative or descriptive information, uh, whether it's for formative purposes or for summative. And and yet, you know, decades ago, uh, educators, politicians decided well it would be a really good idea to use a 100 point scale to to summarize learning, and and it was it was it was never appropriate. Um, but, you know, Rick Stiggins has just traced it all back to the emergence of IQ testing on a large scale. And, well, if we can put a number on IQ, why can't we put a number on everything that kids learn?
0: <laughs> now, you you open a can of worms. Well, you know, I, I kind of want to get back to that eventually about, about standardized testing. Uh, but we'll, we'll save that for perhaps maybe if we have some time at the end. Yeah. Uh, but I, I want to talk about... Um, One of your main messages at our our PD session back in March, which was about finding a balanced approach to assessment, that was one of the the key takeaways that I I took away from from your session there. So for people that aren't familiar with your work, what do you mean by finding a balanced approach? Uh,
1: What I mean when I talk about balance is a balance of written evidence, um, oral or conversational evidence and performance evidence. Um, so you can simplify that to write, do, say evidence, or you can talk about, um, we need evidence through of learning through the products, the things that students create, write, make, build. Um, we need evidence of what They can do the competencies that they can demonstrate through performance. And when students are performing, the assessor's role is to observe. And then also we need to have conversations or listen in or eavesdrop or record conversations, conversations between students, peer to peer in small groups, as well as conversations between teacher and student. Why do we need that kind of balance? Why won't just written evidence do? Well, because our targets, our learning targets these days, if they only had to do with what the students know, then traditional written kinds of assessments maybe be not too bad. If students just have to memorize masses of knowledge, numerous facts, then assess them by can they spit those facts back? But that surely is sort of the lowest level of learning, especially in the world today, where so much knowledge is at our fingertips because of the internet. Now, I know there's an awful lot of horrific stuff on there, but bottom line is think about how many times a day you Google something. And what you're typically Googling is something to do with knowledge, a a series of facts, um, trivial stuff as well as important stuff. So we need to have a way to assess knowledge. And if we still do that in a traditional sort of written product way, I don't see that's a big problem. But then what about understanding very, very different from knowing. Understanding has to do with concepts. It has to do with flexibility in thinking, creative thinking. It has to do with, can the student make inferences from what they've learned? Can they extrapolate their knowledge uh, to a previously unseen situation? So knowledge in itself um, is in evidence if students can do a set of Problems that all look exactly like the practice problems. But in the real world, if we're talking mathematics, real math problems in the world in your home or trying to sort your accounting, uh, your domestic finances, those problems never look exactly like the ones in the textbook in math class. So understanding is when you, you have the flexibility of your thinking. And one of the best indicators of that is to listen in on conversations, particularly when students are engaged in a complex task. And uh, what are they saying that reveals their level of understanding? So conversation is very, very important. Think about the use of the defense of a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation in graduate school. That's probing what the student has written, one, to check that it's actually their own work, but also... um, when students produce a piece of writing, they they choose to, what to put in there. But when they have to respond in an extemporaneous fashion to questions, then we get much richer evidence of do they not only know, but do they understand? So that's the second piece, which is conversational. The third piece is In today's world, particularly, we need to be able to see, can students demonstrate competencies having to do with... All kinds of things uh, in the science lab, If, if they're engaged in a complex inquiry, we want to see, can they demonstrate skills of investigation? Can they demonstrate the skills having to do with designing and carry out an experiment? Can they gather sufficient data? So we actually have to have the students engaged in the performance and then we have to observe them or increasingly, as I argue for it, videotaping what's going on. And performance is important in all subject areas. I mean, it's it's obvious in areas like the performing arts, you know, uh, in drama, in, in art, in music. But I'm arguing that seeing students demonstrate competencies needs to occur in every subject, including mathematics, science, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So I agree with everything that you're saying here. But what I find challenging is let's say, let's pick on a subject like math, or even accounting, my subject. I teach high school accounting. I don't know if I've told you that offline or not. No. <laughs> and I find that, because um, I teach accounting, and people always say it's sort of like math, and it's not really, but there's this element of, you know, where you got to do the work to, to make sure you understand it. So let's pick on math for a moment. So everything that you said, I completely agree with, you know, you got to have some written work, you know, you got to have your balance of traditional tests conversations, et cetera, et cetera. But then the problem is, and I, maybe we'll open a can of worms here. Once you get to the post-secondary level or even graduate level, um, I find that a lot of assessments are your traditional you know, sit-down exam, multiple choice type of testing. And I find that for me, like for instance, in accounting, I purposely give them multiple choice questions, not because I like it, but because I'm like, I'm trying to prepare you for this type of assessment down the road, which I know is kind of the preferred assessment down the road. So how do you find that balance of trying to enrich students with these different balances, different types of assessment, but then also preparing them for this is what's going to be like for the next four years when you go off to UFT? of T.
1: Yes, uh, you raise so many issues. Uh, I have tried to influence and continue to try to influence assessment practices in post-secondary, a much greater challenge than trying to uh, influence practice K to 12. And uh, now there are some wonderful uh, exceptions to the rule. McMaster University Medical School has been a global leader in terms of performance assessment. Um, I agree.
0: We, My brother went to McMaster so, for so that program. So there you go.
1: It's it's. Yeah. And I mean, they've realised that the textbook knowledge. You, you don't want to be treated by a doctor who only has textbook knowledge.
0: Hundred <laughs> percent agree. You, you
1: you want you want to be treated by a doctor who has been certified on the basis of can he actually she actually perform the necessary yes. medical procedures to keep you healthy. And so I that's agree. a beautiful example. And so there are. There is some enlightenment out there, but I think it's very, very sad that during COVID, uh, I read a great deal of the research around what was happening uh, as universities were forced uh, to find alternatives to herding thousands of students into a gymnasium, uh, uh, requiring them to demonstrate their learning without access to any other people or any resources and do it against a clock, the very traditional secure exam model. And of course, suddenly that had to move online. And instead of this being a wonderful opportunity to say, well, how can we assess differently? Instead, the energy seemed to be uh, funneled into how do we create spyware so that when students are completing (laughs) their exams in their home, in their bedroom online, they're not cheating. I I just, I was just so depressed. Now, maybe yeah. we're going to, it takes time, obviously, meaningful change takes time. But so there is a, a, a massive inertia in certainly not all, but many post secondary institutions, a, a, a belief that rigorous especially summative assessment, must be written, must be timed, must not allow students access to resources. It's antediluvian in terms of of not moving with the reality of the world in which we live. That having been said, your other point was... Uh, don't i have to as a high school teacher prepare students for that reality well yes you have a moral responsibility to prepare students for the kinds of high stakes assessment they will face in university but you don't have to do only that um you must make sure nothing wrong with you exposing them to treat t- training them how to be successful on multiple choice tests because they're going to be faced with a lot of those but that doesn't preclude you in your own practice from addressing the imbalance and making sure you've got performance assessment and conversational assessment and being upfront with your students saying, don't expect this appropriate balance of assessment necessarily when you go to post-secondary. I mean, when when I was teaching the old grade 13 in Ontario, once a week, once a week only, I would lecture my kids for 70 minutes and not allow them to ask any questions.
0: Mm. Why
1: did I do that? I did that because I had a moral responsibility to train them how to learn in a lecture setting. They mm. were happy when the day that day was over. And so was I, because the rest of the week I would use a, an appropriate range of instructional strategies. So we have to be careful. It's not an either or. And we must never use poor practice at the next level of education to rationalize poor practice at the level of education which we are in charge of
0: right now you mentioned these different types of assessments in in your research i I, i'm using this term very loosely here but is there a type of assessment whether it's conversation observation and whatnot that you think is quote unquote the best that does the does it justice to capturing student learning?
1: There is no magic bullet. Ron. There's no, ma- no. There is assessment is not neat and tidy and simple, and we pretend it for too long than it is, and we end up with, in some cases, an extreme case, a student who gets a high test score but is incompetent in their field. Um, in other words, we we end up with invalid data. We thought we were testing mathematical proficiency. All we were really testing was the ability to memorize and regurgitate. Um, So there, there is no magic bullet. What I argue as vociferously as I can for is look at your learning outcomes. Look at your curriculum. Look at the learning that students are expected to acquire by the end of their time with you. And then say which of these learning outcomes Uh, objectives, whatever they're called in your jurisdiction, lend themselves to traditional paper and pencil kinds of assessment. And they will typically be the knowledge component, which learning targets within my curriculum, within the courses I teach, require me to actually observe students demonstrating these skills Uh, and competencies. And for those, I'm going to have to design a more complex, messy performance assessment. And which of these learning outcomes, often to do with understanding, will I engage kids in conversation? And so the principle of backward designing your assessment, assessment with the end in mind... And coming up with a summative assessment plan that is appropriately balanced according to different kinds of learning targets. The example to rationalize all of this is the driver's test, where in order to be certified as a driver, the first thing you do is to have to memorize the driver's handbook and then spit back your memorized knowledge on that multiple choice test. Does that get you a driver's license? Of course not. It's necessary, but not sufficient evidence. So then you prepare for the road test, a performance where you're going to drive and an observer is going to watch everything you do and make notes about about the competencies and the skills you demonstrate. The other most difficult part, of course, is the attitudinal part, developing the attitudes and behaviors of a responsible driver. Hard to do, cannot do quickly. We have to do it over time, which is why we have a graduated driver's license. Mm. Three different ways to assess the fitness of an individual to drive a car, a potentially lethal weapon.
0: Now, based off our, our short conversation so far, <clears throat> my assumption, correct me if I'm wrong, my assumption would be you're probably not a fan of standardized testing like EQAO then.
1: I I have spoken at EQAO conferences and been happy to do so. EQAO testing or standardized large-scale provincial testing, national testing, international testing, serves a purpose. Its Mm. purpose is to give um, decision-makers the powers that be leaders information about to what extent is the intended curriculum actually being taught and then learned by our students. And all you can do is is get sort of a dipstick sampling of that. So standardized testing serves a function of is the educational system delivering? But we also need to recognize that the nature of standardized tests, which are timed where students don't have access to resources, the teachers are not even allowed to prompt them. In order to have the data reliable on a standardized test, we narrow the focus of the outcomes which could be tested on a standardized test. So a standardized test is like that driver's test. It's going to give you evidence of knowledge and it's not going to be nearly as good about giving you evidence of understanding. And it's going to be woefully inadequate if if you're looking for evidence of competency. So we need to see what it is, which also means that the stupidest thing we can do with standardized tests is to test every child. We only really need to sample the system. Now, the literacy test in Ontario, of course, is a different one because that's testing every child to determine levels of literacy. But I still object to it because it's a one shot do or die kind of assessment, which flies in the face of of all ethical assessment from my point of view, which must not be that. Well, it's a do or die on one day. And if you blow it too bad. The kind of system I went through in England back in the 60s, which on the basis of three examinations, you were deemed fit or unfit for university at the age of 11, for heaven's sake. That's child abuse.
0: <laughs> now, we talked about in my a previous episode with uh, my principal, Mr. Grant, uh, on this topic of, of grade inflation months and months ago. And I guess things like, I guess, your traditional you know, exam, I guess you know it's it's very it could be black and white especially for things like multiple choice it's either right or it's wrong but then there's these types of assessment that you talk about like observations and conversations where there's a very wide gray area in terms of how you Evaluate and, and give a grade to a student, and we this this conversation led to this whole idea of talking about grade inflation that we've seen over the last decade, and especially last year with COVID, where we see a, saw a huge jump in in grades and entrance levels, um, admissions, uh, and I guess my question for you is, I guess is there. Are there any types of assessments that you think are contributing to grade inflation? Or the opposite question would be Are there any types of assessments that are grade inflation proof? Because we know it is a problem right now.
1: Well, and I think we have to be very careful with the COVID situation because obviously, through no fault of their own, students had their. Their education interrupted and uh, people like my own Canadian Assessment for Learning Network, um, we put forward a position paper uh, really arguing for students not suffering unfairly as a result of uh, evaluations uh, during COVID. So it's been a difficult area and perhaps not surprising there was great inflation related to that. I think the potential for grade inflation increases the more we use percentage grades, the more we can move to a system. We talked earlier about the seven levels of IB uh, where we actually have a set of levels that are clearly described in terms of these are the criteria the student must demonstrate to be at a uh, deemed to be performing a a level five or here are the criteria for a level six. The more we can dare I say, standardize and uh, make public those levels of performance. And then what's absolutely critical to reduce the danger of grade inflation is to have in schools teachers as a regular part of their professional development engage in the moderation of student work. This is to say the process that um, provincial Organizations like EQAOUs, where they take samples of student work, names removed, the scale, the rubric, the four levels, the IB seven levels are in front of every assessor. And then individually and then in groups, they put students' work. And this doesn't only have to be products. These could be videotapes. These could be uh, recordings of conversations. And they categorize the student work according to the seven levels or four levels or or what have you. And then there will be problem pieces of work which seem to straddle two levels. And that's where the the assessors engage in the moderation process. They talk about the attributes of the work relative to the scale. This practice of moderated assessment is something that uh, I believe needs to occur on a regular basis in all of our educational institutions, including post-secondary, I would add.
0: And- well I was gonna to say to stop you there for a moment, I guess if we if, in this hypothetical world, if we were to go to the seven level, all you know all schools in Ontario or even Canada, it's almost becomes a chicken or the egg situation, right? Because if we move to that system, I guess universities need to I guess recognize that as well through their admissions process.
1: But they do. They they have. Universities don't have any problem with IB7 levels. Oh, true. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't have any problem with the advanced placement levels. Mm, So when I when I hear the argument that, well, we would get rid of percentages, but the universities demand them, it's just not true. It's just not mm. true. Uh, th- there is, a, there is a, 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 a habit form. There is a there is an inertia to all of this. But there are plenty of examples globally where universities have no trouble making selection. And in fact, back to my earlier point, I, I'm going to hypothesize that the problem of grade inflation would be could be significantly reduced if we just banished percentage grades, and instead gradually move towards uh, an agreed-upon set of levels. And it's critical to make public the indicators, the performance indicators, the criteria for each of those levels. And then over time, we um, improve the quality of assessments, always recognizing there will be measurement error. You know, I, I think I said at Appleby, one of the most grievous problems with grading is that grading is is like polling. And we would never accept an opinion poll that didn't state, and this poll is accurate 19 times out of 20 with a, with a, a possible range of error of four percentage points. We need to say that about every single percentage grade. Because they are fraught with measurement error, and yet we have prete- we the royal we have pretended for decades that measurement error doesn't exist in K to twelve education or post secondary education. And so to simply random. put,
0: then. So if you were to summarize your your work and your your hypothesis of why we haven't moved towards that system of grading, why do you think that hasn't happened yet? Because every argument that you're making sounds so logical and rational.
1: Oh that's a tough one. I think I think there has a, a, a will been lacking in terms I have been consulted I have consulted with numerous ministries of education across Canada as they have been uh, revamping their report card. I'm about to engage in yet another consulting process with Manitoba education. Um, I have done everything I can. I have no power, I only have influence, to try and bring about significant change. But I would say in my experience working in assessment, and my colleagues like Ken O'Connor would agree with this, that trying to actually get meaningful change at the provincial level, has been very, very difficult. I mentioned earlier the problems with the Ontario model where they they stuck together two entirely different paradigms, a criterion reference model with four levels and ostensibly a norm reference model with percentage grades. And then they stuck the two models into one uh, policy called growing success. That's a classic example of speaking out of both th- both sides of their mouth um the front matter the theoretical stuff the research all was supporting a criterion reference model and then so many of the practices in the back were quite the opposite including using 50 as the cut point for pass fail which is also a problem the notion that 50 the notion that 50% gets you to the next grade level is patently absurd, especially when the ministry said, but the the uh, provincial standard is level three, mm. which is 70 to 80. So, you know, we, we give kids credit for getting a 50. We delude them into thinking that they've achieved enough. But then we say the provincial standard, which is defined as if you achieve at this level, you are prepared for work at the next grade level. So we've got we've got a bar at 50 and a bar at 70 which yeah, it's it's i mean i'm mm. sorry i just lose
0: it. It, it i feel like i'm riling you up right now it's so absurd
1: Ron. it's so absurd
0: yeah, anyway well uh i feel like we need to get you a drink after this <laughs> okay. i see the blood pressure rising yeah right yeah I, uh,
1: that's why i had an asthma attack at your school i, I do get passionate about this stuff
0: no, I love it. That's why we have you on. But I'm looking at the time. I, I wish we could keep talking about this. I know how passionate you are, and there's so many more questions. And obviously, it's impossible to talk about your life's work in in a 30 minute, 40 minute episode in our podcast. Uh, so maybe let's wrap things up, uh, Damien. Okay. Uh, where can teachers find you online? Are you active on Twitter, LinkedIn? Where can people find? Uh, you?
1: They can find me on Twitter at CooperD1954. Uh, they can, I'm, but I'm a bit of an old school kind of person. Please go to my website uh, plan teach assess, uh, dot com. And, um, so, uh, and, and I, if I may, I'll put in a little bit of a plug for rebooting assessment, which was just, please. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, it was just published this past uh, month, uh, February by solution tree. And, uh, it's available, um, directly from solution tree or from Amazon. And it's kind of a different book because it has embedded within it via QR codes, 40 videos uh, of classroom practice. So, um, yeah,
0: that's incredible. Teachers, go get that book. Schools, go get that book. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, Damien's a uh, genius and uh, has a lot of information and knowledge to share with uh, all the different teachers and administrators out there. So, uh, Damien, thank you so much for joining us today on the teacher hotline. We really appreciate it. Um, We're going to have to get you back on sometime in the future because, like I said, uh, so many more questions. I I think this episode just uh, created some more. uh, Opened a can of worms.
1: My pleasure, Ron. Thanks a lot.
0: (laughs) Thank you, guys, and thank you so much for listening in to this episode of The Teacher Hotline. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And, of course, don't forget to click that subscribe button uh, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and any other streaming websites. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you guys next time. Woo!